Like, I feel like I sent this article to so many people that I've lost where it was. Oh, yeah. I, had to, I, I kept going back to the uh, text message to, to pull the article up. That's what I'm saying. And then I, I had it. to uh, get through the paywall and log in to my institution login. And then, uh, yeah, it was a good article. Um, while, you, while you pull that up, uh, welcome back to the podcast. You know, every month I try to do an episode focused on medical ethics and so fortunate Dr. Italo Brown, emergency physician. Uh, he actually hit me up. He's like, dude, you gotta check out this article. Uh, we gotta talk about it. And it's something that I know he is very passionate about. If you don't know uh, Dr. Brown Italo, he's uh, passionate about public health. He earned an MPH. He went to, uh, he is a son of Morehouse. I think it's what y'all, y'all call yourselves. He went to <laughs> Morehouse College, um, then got his MPH. Then he went to Meharry Medical College in Nashville for his uh, for medical school. Then went to uh, Montefiore, 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 however you say that, in New York. You got it. So a man of the people and then went out west to, uh, sorry, he went there for a uh, emergency medicine residency. And then he completed a social emergency medicine fellowship at Stanford. So my man's not new to this. He's true to this. Um, always a wealth of knowledge. We could fill this entire episode talking about the stuff that he does to advance the cause to save lives in addition to working as an emergency medicine physician but dr brown uh welcome back to the show so good to, to have you on no it's a pleasure to be here and uh, i just love what you are doing here uh with this podcast i think it's extremely extremely dope and i think that it's a wealth of information for folks who are trying to pursue uh medicine and be better at it awesome and you're you're you know your podcast you, you've been uh, well sought after on uh, in the podcast realm too. I saw you recently recording with some some big time uh, shows, and, and you're doing your thing. Man, I appreciate it. Just glad to be here and be useful. Um, dude, what grabbed your eye? So I was sitting there. You, you sent me this article. It's entitled "Disparities in Unilateral Do Not Resuscitate Order Use During the COVID nineteen Pandemic." How did you come across this article? I have to uh, give credit to a good friend named Minerva. Uh, Minerva is a surgeon in New York, and she we're in a large group. Uh, all of us participate in uh, Tour for Diversity in Medicine, a group that was started by Cam Matthews and Alden Landry. Uh, but essentially, we share interesting things. And uh, she came about across this article and dropped it inside of our group chat. And I maybe because I was just awake at that time, but when I saw it, I was like, this can't be real. And then I start going through it and I'm like, this is actually kind of horrible uh, in the sense of what it means for patients from uh, specific subpopulations. And so um, she is a, a Latina woman and identifies as such mm-hmm. in her field, which already makes her a rarity. But um, this is an issue that should be relevant to anyone, no matter what their frame of identity is, because Uh, Anytime you're having disproportionate uh, loss of life, especially during a time where uh, we already assumed that, you know, minoritized groups were disproportionately affected, this is uh, significant for us to know. Yeah. And uh, this paper came, you sent this to to me as well as a bunch of other other people. You know, I I love medical ethics and I expected this to be the usual and black people have worse outcomes. And I was I was very surprised by some of the findings of this paper. No, I agree. I, that was, I assume, so I always assume the worst, which is kind of a bad thing, but I'm like, all right, so there's going to be something that says black people are dying at a disproportionate rate. Uh, that's just what medicine in America has uh, come to. But to hear 
that there was another minority group that was experiencing worse outcomes related to this particular identity uh, issue or not identity issue, this particular um, variable. I thought that was like really, really fascinating and not from like an ecological, like, oh, I'm learning a lot from this, but really are we missing the ball on some of our diversity, equity, inclusion, and health equity uh, conversations and metrics? So, you know, I just, I keyed into it and it was definitely something that uh, was eye-opening. So to get everybody to the same kind of baseline, a do not resuscitate order is something that can be placed in a medical record by default. If you come into the hospital, you have a cardiac arrest, they find you on the street, wherever, we're going to try to resuscitate you. We're going to try to restart your heart, do CPR, place a breathing tube, all of the above. We've chosen to default to that as a society. And you have to opt out of that. We say, hey, um, you know, for whatever reason, there's little chance of, of um, uh, uh, recovery. There's little chance of living a meaningful life as you interpret it. For whatever reason, you know, do you want to be resuscitated? Some people, you know, maybe they have terminal illness of some sort would prefer not to be resuscitated. So there is that standard kind of conversation that we have with patients or patients' uh, surrogates to talk about their wishes and um, not resuscitating them in the case that their heart were to stop. Now, so explain the difference between that standard DNR and a unilateral do not resuscitate order. So from what I understand, like a unilateral do not resuscitate order essentially is the same thing as a DNR, but it's placed by clinicians. And they don't need any type of consent, any information from a parent, I mean, uh, from a surrogate, some type of patient. It's something that they can just clinically determine. Uh, And this is something that has been around for quite some time, right? Uh, I think one of the times where we started to hear about this more commonly was in the beginning portion of COVID. Mm -hmm. I think there was an article that came out of Boston, like an op-ed piece talking about how hospitals are coming up with their decision trees to make these unilateral do not resuscitate orders. They were using different metrics like, oh, you know, kidney function and uh, comorbidities and all these other things. And it was initially thought of as a way to kind of further, uh, I guess, exacerbate known disparities uh, in, in terms of healthcare outcomes. But it's, to me, very fascinating because what people are saying is like, Doctors are trusted with the ability to make like clinical reasoning and uh, the judgment on whether or not uh, you can cease resuscitation orders uh, just by your own belief system or your own algorithm. Yeah. So as an anesthesiologist in residency, we did I did like six months in the ICU as a resident. I've come back and I'm doing an ICU uh, fellowship. So I have personally placed several unilateral DNRs. We'll talk about this a little bit in the paper. There's different institutional policies with that regard, whether it takes one physician to do that, whether it takes two physicians, whether it takes an ethics committee meeting. But there are situations that are so dire that this patient has no meaningful chance of recovery and there's no family members or surrogate decision makers to talk to, or maybe you know the, the family members or surrogate decision maker says, I still want everything done. And it gets to a case where it is uh, physiologically futile care to continue to provide resources because we do live in a kind of a resource-constrained environment. So there are legitimate cases for um, unilateral DNRs, but it's interesting because of those healthcare disparities you mentioned and the time frame of this study 
which coincided with the COVID-19 pandemic. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, most of the time people uh, try to think that we are doing the best that we can. I think the hard part was that during this time frame, uh, we were already seeing health disparities mm-hmm. uh, essentially swept under the rug. In real and so time. as you started to question whether or not there were already known exacerbated, I mean, sorry, already known like disparities, did something like this exacerbate it even further? And so, you know, hindsight, we're able to kind of look at this. And that's what this team apparently did was just look at a bunch of different data sets and and see if there was uh, any pattern or trends that emerged. Yeah. You want to um, break down the study, what they looked at? Yeah, no. So essentially what their goal was, uh, was to look at these ICU stays, patients who were admitted to the ICU. They had a defined time frame and it's actually pretty fascinating, like April from 2020 to uh, 2021. And there's these two hospitals where they looked at these ICU stays, every single type of ICU, and uh, tracked what those, um, I guess, do not resuscitate our, they call them UDNRs. So these mm-hmm. UDNR orders. Uh, and then I just looked at a bunch of demographics, things that uh, were reported or uh, different identifiers that were aligned with those orders. Yeah. So they looked at a couple of different institutions. They got kind of their, they weren't able to get a hold of the institutional policies right. for um, how to invoke a unilateral DNR. But like Italo mentioned, they looked at the demographics. And man, I, I always kind of zone out if it's like a study that's done over 10 or 12 years. <laughs> so the fact that this was a year, it was in the heat of a pandemic. Yeah. Like this is like almost real time results. We were watching, right? Remember that time, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, right. the healthcare disparities in real time. Right. So to look back at like what clinically was happening is is fascinating. One of the things that I thought was really fascinating about kind of their design or their way of looking at these outcomes was not only did they capture like demographics of the patient who uh was who the order was placed on, but also who placed it. So like yeah. what were the demographics of the clinician? What was their specialty? What was their documentation like? Like those things to me are really fascinating especially when you're trying to infer if there is some sort of connection, association, or pattern. Yeah. The study looked at two hospitals. They had greater than 100 ICU beds, large um, hospital systems, and they included people or patients that were uh, sick. They were on vasoactive medication to maintain their blood pressure, and um, they chose that to select for very sick, critically ill patients. So they didn't specifically look at the COVID-19 diagnosis, which I think was a good idea because that would have introduced a lot of, you know, other kind of variables because there was in the beginning, you know, do we have tests to, to um, enough tests to actually um, diagnose COVID? There's a lot of other variables, but it just looked at critically ill patients that were admitted to these ICUs during this time who were on this maximum life support because for a uh, unilateral DNR to kind of have a legit, you know, to be legitimate, it's kind of saying we've exhausted all medical options and, and therefore we're not going to resuscitate. Right. Right. Yeah. So then uh, you want to talk about the primary outcomes and what they looked at in this paper? Yeah. So what they did was they went back and looked at the EMR uh, to define whether or not there was an order placed. And then was that order documented uh, specifically by clinician judgment, as opposed to it being like a decision made by the patient or by a family member or some other surrogate. 
Yeah, the characteristics of these patients. So there were just over 3,000 patients admitted to the ICU um, during a, the time period the study was, was uh, taking place. They included 1,473 patients, um, so about 47% of that initial group. They were included in this analysis due to their high severity of illness requiring vasopressors or inotropes. And then during the hospital admission, 41% of patients included in the study had a DNR order placed, and 3% of the patients had a unilateral DNR order placed, so an N of about 51 patients. Now, what did they find? This is when it, uh, the, the rubber hits the, the road. They found, <laughs> this is kind of the messed up part, honestly. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the... Um, so what they found, the patients with a unilateral DNR order placed were predominantly male, 53%, black, 47%, English-speaking, 63%, insured with Medicare, 43%, and had median age of 64 years. Now, uh, Italo, you have the MPH, you read these papers for fun. The percentages, the raw percentages don't really tell you what's going on, right? Because that's, no. that's the big number. Right. Um, you got to do some other permutations. Can you explain, like, how do you get to the actual signals? Well, what they're looking for is uh, not just ranges, but significance in those ranges. Uh, and I think that what they're really trying to identify is, is it a statistically significant amount of people where this is occurring? And their p-values are pretty good when you look at that. So I think a few of the p-values are like less than 0.005. And so to me, that means that it is highly likely that this is not due to chance or randomness. Uh, the other thing that I noted is when they're looking at these particular... Hold on, let me go back. So when I looked at the numbers, essentially what I was trying to see was, were they high enough to even tell if there was a difference? And so they checked that box. Then it was... Are the p-values um, in the range where this could be considered not a random occurrence? And mm -hmm. they check that box almost in every single one of their uh, multivariate analyses, right? So I think that that's good to see. Uh, and then it's just like a strong, um, I would say, comparison to use these very well understood, very clearly defined demographics and to have enough of that data represented in the charts, so it's not like you're missing a bunch of information. It's like, no, this was actually captured and they did it uh, prospectively. So when you're looking back at it retrospectively, it's pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So the um, actual data, the odds of the unilateral do not resuscitate order by patient characteristics. Um, I mean, this paper, I'll put a link in the show notes. It goes through age, sex, you know, male versus female is pretty equivocal. Um, when it gets to race, ethnicity is where that first kind of signal starts to, to pop out. So compared to with the odds ratio, black or African-American, um, odds ratio of uh, 1.9 is almost twice the risk. Um, and correct me if I'm interpreting this incorrectly, uh, but the odds ratio was 1.9 for black or African-Americans and 4.1 for Hispanic or Latinx patients. That's correct. One thing that I do want to emphasize for people is like, the fact that this logistic regression uh, analysis was used, right? So you're really looking at probabilities, like the likelihood of this probability being due to pure chance or uh, something that is not just by chance. I think it was an excellent choice in terms of analyses 
to use to try to like elucidate this a little bit further. The next thing they looked at language, right? Which is kind of crazy when you think about it. It's 2023 when we were talking and recording this. The healthcare disparity for non-English, non-native English speakers. So the odds ratio, right? English being English speaking being uh, one. If you were Spanish speaking, your risk was 4.0, like four times that of a, a native English speaker. Crazy. I mean, if if that does not jar some type of emotion from you, I don't really know, you know, what your 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 compass is, your moral or ethical compass is, because just to hear that there was th- that order of magnitude, you know, like not just like fifty percent, one is four times, you know, that's 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 terrible. The other thing, like it just you know popped out to me. This isn't the the, the big um, signal from the paper, but looking at insurance status, I think you know people overlook the impact insurance status has on your health outcome. So if you're private insured, you know that's the odd ratio of one. Medicaid one point five, Medicare was about the same at one point one, and then uninsured uh, almost three times the risk of having a unilateral uh, DNR order. And then if you passed away during admission or discharged at hospice, then it had almost an eight x increase um in your your risk obviously because you're getting a unilateral dnr yeah i i struggle with it um because i mean we'll get to the inferences in a second but it's it's hard to look at because you're saying to yourself all right there's got to be a mistake in the data there's got to be a mistake in the way it's captured these these other factors have to have some sort of like convergence or there's uh, maybe like an error, some type of other statistical error that exists. And to be honest, the the authors of this kind of like pretty did a pretty good job of, you know, trying to eliminate as many types of error as possible. So I was like, no, this is actually it. Yeah. And, and to remind you, this is two different hospital systems that they're looking at. At the end, they um, kind of broke down hospital A versus hospital B. Um, and Hospital B had a had a four times the uh, risk of a, uni, a unilateral DNR order being placed, and I don't think they identified, you know, the hospital. I doubt they would do that. But um, so again, they just showed the difference in how two hospital systems kind of manage manage this. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if that. You know, did hospital uh, A maybe have a different demographic of patients? And I don't know if the analysis. I don't think that, that they are. No. So I my suspicion, <laughs> I don't know the hospitals outright, but my suspicion is that information is somewhat protected on the strength mm-hmm. of maybe the profile of the hospitals that are uh, involved. And uh, I will also suggest that as people ask more questions around this paper, I think those details are going to be requested. So, you know, once this starts to really circulate, I think that there's going to be a letter to the editor where it's going to provide more details around this because that would make a significant uh, dent in understanding the underpinnings for this, uh, the the differences that we see. But you can make some inferences, right? It's like, all right, you know, how many percentage of uh, people were documented as Spanish speaking or not English, have, having uh, another first language other than English. 
uh, in this study. And as those numbers go up, you can kind of think about where in the city these would be uh, located. So like proxy measures of it. Yeah. Uh, Hablas Espanol. There you go. There you go. There you go. Right. I've I've been learning Duolingo for about five years, right? I've been working on my Spanish and and my wife laughs at me because all I have time to do is like the quick lesson, which is like, hola, mi caro es rojo, you know? Right. She's like making fun of me. So this hit home for me because it's like, you know, how often do I have a Spanish speaking patient? And as a black man, Mm -hmm. physician in America, like I understand the ramifications of healthcare disparities. And sometimes I'm still rushed to take that time to actually get the interpreter phone or to to go 100% to make sure that I am providing that same level of care. No, that's the right way to approach it. I think what I learned out of this is, I mean, well, I, I work in California and our Spanish speaking population uh, is pretty high. And I always think about engaging an interpreter but there are some facets to this that, you know, interpreters don't necessarily get, you know, it, mm-hmm. there's like family dynamics. There's other elements, uh, people not feeling comfortable enough to speak up or share their information, uh, whether there's an interpreter there or not. You know, so I think that, you know, it's one thing just getting over the pure barrier of language, but culture, practice, uh, identity, like all these other things get drawn into uh, the the spectrum, and they can significantly impact or influence uh, someone's ideas around do not resuscitate orders. Specifically, how likely they are to speak up against it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like right. even if it's a unilateral DNR that's created, but their ability to advocate and raise hell that changes. They they mention, and I'm so glad they brought this out, past studies have found inaccuracies in interpretation of medical content by medical interpreters. 25% of the time with interpreters by video conference, 23% of the time for in-person professional interpreters, and 54% of the time for ad hoc interpreters. That's when you grab the, uh, the family members. Major, major, major point there. One thing I, I wanted to point out from that as well is that like, we're talking about a time in COVID where yes. we were not even sending people into the rooms. You know what I mean? Yes. So it's like, how are you having this conversation when the interpreters at the time were worried about their own safety? So you're using more telehealth or telemedicine tools. And so this is something that also has to be explored. Like, what is the, how was this occurring and, and who was physically present? You know, so. Yeah, they they brought out the fact that in the pandemic, which highlighted these healthcare disparities, they say one reason or or one potential explanation that primary Spanish speaking patients had higher rates of unilateral DNR placement is because they also had higher rates of COVID nineteen. I remember like we saw this happen in real time. We talked about these uh, mm-hmm. social drivers of health. I think mm-hmm. is what is the the proper terminology. I see you've been It'll, you've been learning and reading, bro. You've been I posted. <laughs> Yes, sir. That's awesome. I mean, these are the things that are going to be like if they continue to do analyses outside of this one particular one and see other factors, like really look at this uh, population or subpopulation, they're going to see overlaps with these social and structural drivers of health. One indicator is obviously insurance status, but I think Mm -hmm. they can continue to see like socioeconomics, 
geography, like all these other things. Um, but it's really fascinating to me uh, that this study, uh, you know, hasn't really bubbled to the point where it's like a lot of people frustrated. Maybe it's because it recently came out, but I think that this is it's very much so it speaks to something that was happening in a variety of other pockets. Like, okay, we have this data set, this group that's out of Chicago, um, which if it's occurring in this type of a environment where we tend to see healthcare elevated, imagine what's happening in some of these other locations. <laughs> like, right. I mean, we could, well, that's, what, if, what if this was Texas? What if this was uh, Georgia areas where they have high uh, Spanish speaking right. populations and, don't necessarily activate some of the services that would be more likely to be activated in Chicago. So, yeah, uh, I, I should have put this disclosure in the, in the beginning. I may um, go back and edit it or probably not. Um, but I did, I do work with several of these authors. Uh, we're on, I did a fellowship in clinical medical ethics. They're part of our, our ethics uh, fellowship program. And so I just like kudos to them for pulling out these signals in the data, thinking about this, study design and bringing these issues to the forefront as a black physician. Right. I mean, this is eye opening and encourages me to change my practice. Right. Right. Um, and it's, it's very bold and I don't know what this will bring for that group, but I do think of it as a necessary step. And so I'm glad yeah. that they published it. And I think it's ex- extremely impressive for them to risk, you know, whatever comes with this, to really give light to something that is true and uh, eye-opening and, and incredibly powerful. Uh, as a Black clinician, what this says to me, and, and this is the, the real funny thing here is that I know your typical podcast listenership uh, may be sli- uh, skewed slightly maybe towards people who identify as Black or African-American or of African descent. But this is important for us, not just as people who can be intersectional, but mm-hmm. really, we might be the only ones who can't advocate in those situations right. if they're, the number of Spanish-speaking clinicians isn't increased or if they're not present. Like You should be able to advocate similarly or at least be aware of it. And so that's something that I took from this. Is like, hey, as the Black doctor, I should be thinking about this type of stuff for all of the populations uh, that I see because I understand what it happens when it, to people who look like me. <laughs> you know, And so- it just, it was very, um, it was soul stirring and I felt where they were coming from. Yeah, man. Well, I'm, I am glad you saw this and shared this article with you. I'm glad Minerva shared with you. You said there was a tour for the diversity connection. I got to plug, uh, the folks at tour for diversity, they're doing an incredible work of this mission of increasing the diversity of the healthcare workforce, which would make so many inroads into changing um, policies and pushing the envelope and creating this this equitable space. That's right. That's right. I mean, the more we get uh, clinicians who are of other cultures, who have other languages beyond English and who have a robust understanding of family dynamics, uh, we'll yeah. be better at these type of moments. And then there will be a feeling of representation. Because uh, I guarantee if this information got out to the Spanish speaking patients <laughs> that I, that we have and it was in the language understood, they'd be raising all hell. And, and <laughs> we need to have uh, we need to to be able to produce 
folks who reflect the populations that we serve, even during the most trying of times. So I'm not going to accept the excuse that, hey, this happened during COVID. We didn't know what we were doing. That right. does not work. We need to have equity as in the front of our minds at all times. Oh, man. Dr. Italo Brown, emergency physician. Bro, every time you come on, it, it's uh, it's good. Dude, I, I will continue to show up. Uh, and as long as you you got this platform and, and are doing good work, man, I'm super supportive of it. Appreciate it, brother. I know you got to go and actually say, save some more lives. Um, get your hands hands dirty. No uh, public health tonight, but got to head off to an ER shift. Um, and and we, we wish you well. Get out there and, and help some folks out. That's right, man. Trauma shears on deck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for uh, tuning in to this episode of Black Doctors Podcast. We're here every week because representation matters. 